Yes, and praise the Lord on and on. Uh, that's a refrain we could continue to sing together. Um, and now we'll do so silently in our hearts as we know that God is good for what he has done in Christ, our living hope. Um, well, I want to begin by letting you know something important about myself. I like soccer. I don't know if anybody knew that yet, um, but maybe that's the first thing you heard and probably the last thing you want to hear again uh, about me, but um, I've shifted roles a little bit. I don't play anymore, and now I'm coaching. <laughs> so that opens up a whole new world for me. Uh, very exciting. In a sense, I'm stepping back into the same world, but, uh, but, but going back out onto the soccer field on Saturday morning, as birds are chirping, the lawn is cut, and uh, it's, it's fresh with you know, the moisture, uh, the goals are glistening white, waiting to be kicked at, um, and no one's out there yet walking out onto the field. There's something of nostalgia there for me. And walking out there with my daughter's 10 and 11-year-old soccer team um, is, uh, is quite fun, quite exciting for me. It does remind me of so many days, so many tournaments, so many games and uh, seasons of doing that with my, my parents on the sidelines, uh, uh, for one or two years, my dad was my coach as a, as a kid, uh, but then playing more competitively. My brothers also did the same thing, and being able to play um, uh, beyond high school was a blast. But there were some really funny things that when I was a kid, we heard yelled from the sideline out to the field. I mean, if you ever spectated or been a spectator, and, and maybe that's you, you know, you get into the game, you're so excited, and, and you just want them to do something, and you just start yelling uh, out there, and, uh, and you get caught up in the moment, right? Um, my family would recall certain things that were said during certain games and uh, just chuckle at it, you know. Um, there's always the person who's yelling, you know, kick it! You know, like that's the only thing to do in soccer is just kick the ball. Like wherever you're at, kick it. Wherever you're at, kick it. You know, it's just, <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, that's one way to play. It turns out to be a little sloppy. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that's, and that's one of those, you know, sideline refrains that we heard quite a bit. Uh, or, uh, or boot it! You know, and you kind of, you know, boot it out of here. And, and then every time somebody kicked it really hard, it was like everybody cheered. Like we didn't score, it just went really high in the air, you know. Um, and so funny things like that. One of them stood out to me, um, and, and uh, my family often remembered this one. Uh, and somebody yelled out at one point, you know, don't shoot it, finish it. <laughs> it was kind of like, what did that mean? Um, and, uh, and it was just watching, watching what was going on on the field. And come to think of it, they did have a point. They did have a point, even though we thought it was kind of funny, and it ended up becoming something of a, of a joke in our household, uh, you know, throwing the banana peel almost in the trash can. Don't shoot it, finish it. You know, kind of a, you know, driving uh, and trying to park in, <laughs> my first time, trying to park in a parking slot, you know, and not making it. Oh, don't shoot it, finish it, man. You know, kind of like, it just became kind of like a, a phrase around home. Um, but, it, but it made a lot of sense because uh, some kids would just be like so frightened they were in front of the goal. They just want to kind of like kick it at the goal with whatever they could, however they could. Um, and it just kind of, or maybe the goalie hits it and it bounces right down in front of them. And they were just happy to kick it the first time. But you're kind of like, it's not in the goal yet. Go finish it. Um, and so that was always something I was like, hey, that actually works. Uh, you want to just not just shoot it at the goal, but you want to finish it. Finish it off, put it into the net, make it cross that plane, then you can celebrate uh, and be excited. And so, um, you know, come to, come to think of it, as you really ponder the Christian life, you can kind of see how this applies in a way, uh, that uh, a lot of times we can be doing just that, kicking out the Christian life, 
We think we're going the right direction. People cheering when big things seem to be happening. Uh, But really, there's no intent on finishing it. There's really no intent on finishing it or knowing exactly what to do when you're in front of the goal. And youth ministry, just speaking from that point of view, youth ministry is filled with long conversations and prayers and uh, counseling uh, over the salvation of students who seem so close and yet not there. Consider Erica. Erica came to church after her dad left the family. Mom brought the three daughters with her. Erica got along fine with others. In fact, she got along so fine um, that she was quite popular in the youth group. And the youth group uh, kids loved her. And the boys did love her. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, she was so good with people and, and, uh, and enjoyed that so much that she became popular outside of the youth group at school and with other friends. And those influences uh, had a negative effect on her. She started to want to become popular because it felt good to be liked by many people, probably something she didn't have in the home. Uh, and uh, being pretty, she wanted to be accepted for how she looked on the outside and she joined the party scene. And all of her church friends tried to reach out to her as they saw her slip out of the church and into those high school and above years. But in the end, whatever seed had been sown on the hard soil of her heart was snatched up by Satan. Consider Greg. Greg has never been to church. He lived down the street from Curtis. Uh, Curtis invited his neighbor, Greg, to summer camp. Summer camp that summer was going to be up in the mountains, and it was going to be a great time. Greg's family did not show him love. It was a home that was not filled with the knowledge or love of Christ, and when he came to camp, he experienced something totally different than what he's ever experienced in the home. It was love. There was peace. And there was joy. At the end of camp, at share time, Greg decided to give his life to Christ and be a part of what was going on around him. Everyone was overjoyed. Uh, Youth leaders driving home on the long trip home warned him of how hard it will be to live as a Christian in the world. And they watched Greg return to his house, to his unbelieving family, And his family and friends did not make it easy for him to be a Christian. Sadly, he had no root in his faith. And after tribulation and persecution arose on account of the word, which he seemed to put his faith in, he fell away. Consider Brad. Brad grew up in the church. His dad out of the picture, sadly. Mom is grumpy at life. Also, at summer camp, As a junior hire, uh, Brad spent some time with the youth leader, Matt. Matt shared Christ with Brad on the beach, watching the waves roll in and out, talking about life and how important it is to live for Christ rather than all the things that Brad had been getting into. Brad had been getting into trouble, lots of trouble, and his life was not making sense. It wasn't adding up. It started to make sense. In fact, Brad had tears dripping down his face, knowing that he needed to give his life to Christ, and and he did so on the beach that day. He gave his life to Christ. Matt led him, 
to a knowledge of Christ. Sadly, as Brad got back involved with his life at home, the influences around him, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entered in and choked out the word that was sown in his heart. He returned to a life of troublemaking, and it got worse. He was kicked out of youth group, in fact, because he was fighting, and he was cursing, and he was breaking every rule there was. He began stealing even bigger things. He was breaking into where he had not belonged. He was living a truant life as far as school goes, and on the weekend, he would even get drunk before noon. He was chasing something else. Matt had a chance to go and rope Brad back in, but he had been choked out by the world. In each of these cases, whether it's Erica, Greg, Brad, they heard plenty from God's word. They heard the true, clear gospel, and they heard it a number of times in different ways, different times, zero distractions, just them in Christ, looking right at him as if he was right before them. They heard, they saw, they tasted, they, they experienced. It was always around them and not truly in them. Hearing wasn't their problem. Their problem was that they couldn't truly hear. Couldn't truly hear. That's what I want to talk with you about, how to truly hear. In the Gospel of Mark, and that's where I want you to turn with me, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus has come proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see, as we build up to chapter 4, that Jesus is healing people, he's casting out demons, he's demonstrating his authority that he has to perform miracles, and he's proving that the message that he is teaching is in fact from heaven and true through and through. Many people follow him for selfish reasons, obvious reasons. He's setting up free health care that actually works. <laughs> and people are being freed from every kind of sickness and it doesn't come to a great cost to them. They just need to come to the miracle worker. Free food he's giving out to those who uh, had their stomachs as their God. Entertaining people with miracles, though that was not... Jesus' design in the miracles, that's what the crowd was looking for, was mere entertainment. And there are some who follow as his disciples. You see that that is the minority, but there are those few that he called to follow as his disciples. And several others oppose him in various ways and at different times and various intensities. Think about his family for a second. Jesus' biological family, yes, he had brothers and sisters uh, and a mother. Joseph probably passed away at some point in his youth because he's not mentioned a whole lot more in the rest of the Gospels, but his family came to the conclusion that he was out of his mind. They thought their son Jesus, brother Jesus, was a lunatic. He was loopy. And so they tried to pull him out of the crowd, stop saying the things you're saying. People of all kinds and shape and size and smell are coming around you. No, they're trying to withdraw him. Well, not only did his family think that he was crazy, but the religious leaders of Israel accused him of being demon-possessed. How is it that we can 
describe or explain how he is casting out demons. Clearly he's doing this and he's getting a following. So the religious leaders have one explanation. He's not doing it by the power of God. He's doing it by the power of Satan himself. And so Jesus has faced much opposition. He has spoken and the main reason he came out was to go and proclaim the message of good news that people might repent from their sin and put their faith in him. And this is when chapter four of Mark comes in. And it makes so much sense. The parable of the soils, as I illustrated for you with Erica, Greg, and Brad, were the soils of heart that did not receive the word. And that was happening in the life of Jesus. He was sowing all kinds of things, talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. And many people, it was just bouncing off their hard hearts or it landed and it sprouted up quickly because they seemed excited about what they were getting, but they had no root. Ultimately, many were hearing, but they were falling short of truly hearing and producing fruit. So that's exactly why Jesus told the crowds the parable of the soils, that his disciples, that those who would truly follow him would receive his word and do more with it than just hear. In Mark 4, and we're going to look at verse 21 to 25, this is a short passage right after the parable of the soils. Jesus gives three warnings so that you can hear gospel truth, you can receive it by faith, and you can bear much fruit in your life to the glory of God, and you could be that good soil that bears much fruit like we see in verse 20. At this time, I want to read our text, Mark 4, 21 to 25. It reads this way, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I wanted to give you warnings because that's probably the best thing I could do for your spiritual state. I think all of you have been coming to one degree or another very faithfully to hear All of you have been coming to hear the word of God. You have read in your own Bibles. You've sat under teaching and preaching in in many different ways, either here at Lakeside or somewhere. And, And what you do with that, where it goes next, is that essential component we're talking about. Only that which you can truly understand of yourself and and what's going on there in the heart. And this is one of those things that that definitely stands almost confronting us. And, and convicting us of what we do with all that we take on. I fear that we take on way more than we actually do with it. And I would love for us to be able to do just as much with what we have been given, so it'll correspond. Let me give you the first warning, and that is this in verses 21 to 22. Don't just receive the word, impart it. Don't just receive the word, impart it. It might be on the screen. Possibly. It'll come, maybe. All right, so that's the first thing we want to talk about is do not just receive the word, impart it. And you might kind of think for a second, you know, why is this the first warning 
that he's talking about uh, as far as to be someone who truly hears. Well, look at verse 21. I think you'll understand how this fits. He said to them, Jesus, speaking to his uh, disciples, those who were uh, near him now at this point, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. Uh, It's a rhetorical question or two here. Um, And what he's going to do in these verses that we're going to look at uh, is give almost kind of like uh, proverbs uh, one after the other. They're not going to sound as much like parables, even though that's the context of this chapter. Uh, They're going to come at you a little bit more like jabs that parables do, packed with some truth in there. Matthew and Luke also include uh, these truths that Jesus talks about. And uh, you'll see at different times and different occasions that they record that. And so he speaks to them in, in these rhetorical questions. And who doesn't know what those are, right? Um, that was an example. Um, and uh, so you're looking at these rhetorical questions. You go, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, under a bed, and not on a stand? There's an obvious answer. There's an obvious answer. The answer is no. It is not. For the purpose of a lamp is not to be concealed, but to be revealed. So you come to a, a time in, in, in culture where uh, when it gets dark, there is not an easy flick of a switch or a timer that turns lights on or lamps or flashlights that are very easy. Uh, each of these lamps must be intentionally lit and put in a certain space of darkness to be able to light up around it what's going on. When the sun goes down, it's almost like everybody has to go down because there's not much more they can do to function because it's dark. And so you have a lamp being probably one of the most common uh, pieces of, uh, of daily life in society uh, in ancient times, um, just like we would have electricity running through um, our homes and Wi-Fi. Um, and uh, so this is, this is a very common thing, a lamp. And there's a basket and a bed. These are some very basic things that are in almost every household uh, a basket there or something uh, used to, uh, to measure out, um, you know, for in the kitchen about, uh, you know, kind of like a measuring cup or something, um, uh, certain units uh, for food and, and all of that. And then you've got the bed, uh, which likely would uh, be uh, raised up possibly. Um, and, uh, and a lamp underneath a basket or a bed uh, does not make sense. It's meant to be put on a stand to illumine the whole room. Luke 8.16 is a helpful cross-reference. He says this in Luke 8.16, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with jar, a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. That's the reason for it to be lit up. And as we heard earlier, Matthew 5.14-16, uh, another uh, passage where it talks directly about this passage and corresponds it to the way we should be living as a lamp. Um, and so you see the image here behind me, and it's this clay, uh, you know, pot, very, very hollowed out, very simple to, to make. Um, got kind of an end to it, but essentially hollow to be able to put oil in it. And there is a, um, a wick that is put in there um, and that is wet by the oil. Um, and then you light the front of it, and it lights up just enough. I always think it's interesting to kind of think about the culture of the day for a little bit and kind of think, you know, how many lumens did this put off? Uh, probably not very many, um, but, it, but it's enough for you to see what is all right around you. 
If you're at the dinner table, you can see the, the company and the people that are right there at the table. If you're uh, going into another room, it's, it lights up uh, a couple of feet uh, of what is in that room. Uh, it's not a beacon that just shines uh, way out and fills everything like the sun, uh, but this is a small light for specific purposes, almost kind of like for the next few steps, for the next decision, the next conversation. It's light right there for those purposes, those things. And when you come into a room, you're supposed to put it on a lamp stand. You're supposed to put it up high so it features the light in, in, in the best way possible. Uh, you could think about this, in, uh, and it makes total sense when you see this as Christ referring to himself and him coming into the world. Picture the room like the world. Picture Christ being the lamp. And you read it again, is a lamp, is Christ brought in to be put under a basket? Is Christ brought into the world to be concealed? Uh, that is the question that he's saying. The answer is no. It would be absurd for him to come in with truth and then to be concealed or covered up. So this is one of those moments where you kind of ask and kind of think, well, um, you know, how does this begin to apply to us? And when he's talking about receiving uh, and then imparting being more important, um, this is something we need to draw a connection to. The, the verse previous to this, verse 20, talks about the good soil, right? Are those who, when they hear the word, accept it, bear fruit, and check this out, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, there is fruit born. So Jesus is talking about the effect that the one who has a good soil as their heart receives the word, they go then and then multiply greatly. That's the usefulness, that's the purpose of why you receive Christ, why you receive his word. It comes in for that effect. So when you have this light effect now, and he's saying, is the lamp to be brought in just to be covered up? That's kind of like saying, you're like the first three soils. Was the seed sown to just get snatched up by the birds? Was the seed sown just to land in the very shallow soil where the roots had no depth and it would die? Were the seeds sown uh, on, on soil where there's weeds so they would just grow up and be choked out? They say, no. Look at the reason for which he came into the world. It's so that he might be put on display. It has, a, it has an implication for our lives. If you're gonna receive the word, like that good soil takes in that seed, you're going to then impart it to others. You're going to have it multiply around you. It's going to have some usefulness or impact or effect on the people right around you. So I love when God uh, gives, uh, I don't know, certain verses in the Bible that seem to kind of run up against each other because they almost seem kind of like, well, which one is it? And this is one of those times where you consider, well, who is the light? In John 8, 12, Jesus says about himself, I am the light of the world. Here, he's talking about himself as a lamp. And you kind of think, okay, well, he's the light. Well, then you read Matthew 5, 14. He says, you are the light of the world. Okay, so, so now Jesus is the light of the world, and now we are the light of the world. So you guys see how this works. The only reason that you can be a light in this dark world is if Christ is the source of your light. If Christ is the one that you've come to, you've received, and then you go and you talk about and you worship and you live for. It's almost like every time you go and shine your light in this world, all you are is reflected light. You don't have light in yourself to shine to other people. The only light that you have is the light of Christ. 
So you speak of what he has spoken of. You, you live for what he's lived for. You believe in the things that he has taught. And others are seeing the light of Christ in you. But you kind of think for a moment, and you go, okay, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, under a bed? Why would anybody put a light under a basket, under a bed? It does not make sense. And yet we still do it. Right? That's something that just boggles my mind. If you've found Christ, the treasure, the remedy, your highest and greatest good, and then you don't offer it to anybody, don't speak of it to anybody, it seems foolish. Like, what are you doing with the light? Take it, put it, you're going to put it out. Or it's going to light the bed on fire. You know, you're, you're using the light the wrong way. And it should catch us like that. Like, what am I doing with the light of Christ in me? Why do I hide him? Because of my fear. Why do I hide him? Because I'm nervous about what this world will do to me. Why do I cover him up? Why don't I speak up when I have the opportunity to do so? We'll consider this more in a second as far as applications for our life. Look at verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So he's saying the whole purpose of him coming to earth was for him to reveal the plan of God about the kingdom of God. That's why he came into the room was to light it up. That's why he came into the world was to light it up and talk about the kingdom of God. It wasn't to come into the world only then for his disciples to conceal this message that he is looking to reveal. This world loves darkness, and that's one of the reasons probably why we put our baskets over the lamp, because we're afraid of the dark, and we too know that we have darkness in us, and we know that when we talk to people who are unbelievers, we might be afraid that they would hiss back at us when we shine the light on them, like throwing a pail of water on the wicked witch, you know, as she kind of (laughs) melts to the ground. We're like, you know, here's the light, and ah, what's going to happen The disciples were taught by Jesus so they could teach for Jesus. They were called that they might go then and call. They used to be fishers of fish, now are fishers of men. They're disciples of Christ to go be making disciples of Christ. They received a message that they could go then and proclaim. That's what Jesus is talking about here, and this is their main objective. The second warning we have about truly hearing is to don't just hear the word, but heed it. Don't just hear the word, but heed it. Look at verse 23 and 24. It's a shorter point here, but I want to make mention of what is right at the belly of these kind of proverb-like sayings that Jesus says. So he switches a little bit to talking more directly to to the person and, and how they hear Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He goes on to describe that. So just looking at verse 23 and 24, the beginning there. Paying attention to what you hear. Pay attention. Why do you need to be told to pay attention? It's not not important to me anymore. I found something else. It doesn't seem to have as much value as I first thought. Uh, these things, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to question. We start leaning on our understanding. 
we get distracted by so many different things. Think about it in this day and age. How well do we do at really thinking about things with all the distractions around us? Right? How well do you actually ponder, sit, reflect, meditate on Scripture when that thing in your pocket buzzes all the time? When that screen glows right there calling you to go and check up on things and follow email threads and to be in the know. Social media beckoning you to go and keep up and keep chasing and you realize, I feel like I'm chasing the wind uh, with this social media thing. This is extremely difficult for us to follow and this is why it's a warning. Don't just hear the word, but heed it. Pay very close attention to it. Really, what you have here is both an encouragement and an exhortation. Let me tell you how this works. The encouragement is first. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He's talking about more than just the anatomy of your your head, but he's talking about something of the heart, something of the inner man. If you have ears to hear, he's saying if you can really truly hear, then hear. If you can truly listen, then listen. If you know what I'm talking about, about the kingdom of God, then lean in and let me tell you more. If these parables are starting to make sense to you, I have more for you. Here they are, is what he's saying. And the only reason that that became possible, that you didn't just have physical ears, but now you have ears to be able to hear with the soul and respond, is because God made you new. He called you. He changed your heart. He gave you a soft heart, not a hard heart anymore. And now your heart works the way and responds the way that it's supposed to. You have a hearing that's not like a spiritual deaf person, but you now can hear and spiritual things enter into your mind. They make sense to you. And then you see things and you're not blind to them anymore, but you see things and you go, I know how this works. That's because God has preceded your hearing with a helping that only he could do. That's an encouragement. It's an encouragement that God goes before us in all of our true hearing. And we pray, God, would you enable, would you allow us to truly hear you? We're desperate for you. Only he can do that, give you ears to hear. And when he does, thank God that you can hear his voice. Then, when you hear his voice, he says, pay attention to what I'm saying. Pay attention to what I'm saying. It's also an exhortation because that is what you are called to do is to, is to listen well, listen well. Being divinely enabled to hear and to listen, now you're called to obey. That's why hearing it should be likened to heeding or, or obeying or listening and obeying what is said. Now the way that this is worded Uh, In verse 24 is to see and to hear. Literally, see what you are hearing. Do you see what you're hearing? It's kind of an interesting way to say it. Get what you are hearing. Understand what you are hearing. Grasp what you are hearing. And that's what we're called to do. Let me give you that last warning here. And this is one I want to, uh, to end on, but to give you a final nudge with. This third warning is to don't just have the word, but use it. Don't just have the word, but use it. Maybe we can get a click on that, so come up in front of you here. But uh, this third instruction or warning to truly hear involves application. It involves exercise. It involves practice. It involves work. Sweet, sweet, sweat is what this involves. 
Now, sadly, this kind of hard work is not something that's praised. I hear people talk about hard work these days almost kind of like it's a bygone virtue. Uh, like it's something that's like, oh, yeah, I remember when people used to work hard for pay. And, you know, um, uh, so many people talk about the dream job these days. You know what the dream job is? The dream job is making stupid amounts of money and doing next to nothing to get it. All right? That's the dream job? Now, you got a poor theology of work if you think that's the dream job. You're like, oh, I'd love to be able to just make so much money that I could be so financially, independently wealthy that I didn't even have to really work for it. You lazy little, you know, that's, that's the wrong way to think about work, right? Chimney. All right, and you also think of like students in college or something. You know what the best classes were? Easy A's, yes. Oh, man, I would love to go in there and maybe listen to some lectures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I want the professor to just tell me the answers to the test. And if he just told me the answers to the test, give me that study guide, open book, open note. I loved that class. A on my report card. Boom. And, and we walk out almost kind of like, yeah, that was the best class. That's the best teacher. He's the best. She's the best. We're like, what? What did you even do to work for that grade? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. You cheat, cheated it. That was, it was, that was no good. And you think about you know, work or class or whatever it is. Maybe it's uh, you're, you're not into those two things, but you're looking for the beach body. Um, you want the beach body that comes in powder form. Uh, and so you're just kind of, you know, if I just drink this and then drink that and add these and, bleh, 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 uh, and then I'm going to go do like 12 push-ups and like maybe some sit-ups, you know, um, where's my body, right? And you want the drugs to do the job. Um, this is where our world is at. It just lifts up this, uh, this not having to work hard, but getting great results kind of thing. Getting great money, getting great grades, but not having to work very hard for it. Uh, think about the farmer. I'm still in that mindset because I think Jesus was thinking about the farmer as well. At harvest time, the farmer would only expect to get back from his field what he had put into it that year. If he had been lazy, slack in the field that year, distracted by other pursuits that were less important, he knew he would get little at harvest time. But if he had been diligent and sacrificing and making sure that he was faithful to the task out in the fields, then he could expect a fruitful crop at harvest time. And this is all that the Lord should be merciful, ultimately. But Jesus uses a kind of um, a, a term here and terms here uh, that help us to really understand this hard work, and I want you to catch it. Look at these last few words uh, that we'll examine here this morning. After he says, pay attention to what you hear, listen to what he says now. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. So there's an increase. For the one who has, more will be given. He says it again. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This, these are scary words. These are scary words this morning. Because you could be thinking, oh, I've, I've amassed a good amount of knowledge. I could tell you a lot of things about who Jesus is. I could tell you about God. I could quote verses for you. But if it's not real of your life, then it will all be taken away as if you never had it in the first place. And this is, this is very scary, I think, for Bible churches in particular. And here we are, a Bible church. I wouldn't have it any other way. I love being in a Bible church, but we have a warning 
We hear such good things, and, I, and, then, and then where does it go next? We can't just have, we need to use. We need to use what we've been given. Some of you say, but I don't know very much. It doesn't matter how much you have. If you are born again and you've been given this capacity by the Holy Spirit to honor God with your life and you've been given just an ounce of knowledge about Christ, use that ounce. Don't whine that you don't have other portions that other people don't have. You compare yourself to other people and you go, I wish I knew as much as she did or I wish I had a life like her or I wish I could just be more like him and we're having our eyes on other people and other things. No, look at Christ. What has he shown to you? Okay, now what has he shown to you? What have you shown about that to somebody else? That's it. (laughs) Hey, I don't know. All I know is that one time I was blind and now I see do you guys want to know him too? And the Pharisees go, oh, we don't like this guy, right? I mean, you, you don't have to know that much. Uh, the demoniac, he's got thousands of demons fleeing him into the pigs. They go off the, the edge of the cliff into the, to the water and, and he wants to go follow Jesus. Jesus says, no, go tell your family, go tell your friends all that God has done to you. Uh, well, there was a very brief exchange. What was his theology like? The demoniac, the once demoniac. Uh, He went in to go tell people this much, a tiny amount, but he was faithful with that. And so if you feel like you're that person who doesn't know much, what you know is so important. And so take that and share that. And guess what? As you share it, as you do something with it, he promises here to give you more. But if you sit on it and you go, I've heard messages about election. I've heard messages about end times. I've heard messages about lordship salvation. I've, I've heard uh, this book preached and I've heard the gospel a million times. And you do what the one man did in the parable of the talents. He took it. He found a spot in the field to bury it, kept it safe, and just left it there. He didn't go and he didn't invest that knowledge in anything. When the Lord returns, the Lord's gonna ask you, what did you do with the talents I gave you? Well, I got it right here, let me dig it up. Okay, you did nothing with it, so it will be taken from you. And I'm like, oh, this gives me chills. Look, look at where we're at. We're like, we hear the word so much. What do we do with it? Lord, help us to do so much with it, right? I mean, out of all the churches we could be landed in in the world, and we hear the truth of God just like, here, let me tell you what this says, let me tell you what this says. And then we go and we take it, and then we like shift gears out of it to something else. But think about the possibilities. If we were to go and take this and then, and then go tell other people about it, go, go start a Bible study, go, go have conversations about it and start practicing it and living it out, glorying in Christ and not being afraid of the world. Oh, guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna give you more and more, and more. He's gonna keep measuring out. That same cup that earlier was covering the lamp, now this is something that God is saying, hey, if you, if, you, if you measure out this, and if you use what's been given to you, more will be measured to you. More will be measured to you. To the degree you practice truth, he will provide truth. So practice and expect more to come. But if you don't practice, the expectation is grim. It's scary and it has to do with loss. When we stretch our lives in conformity to Christ because of what he's shown us, 
he stretches our life's capacity to know him more. Let me say that again. When we stretch our lives in conformity to Christ with what he has shown us, he stretches our life's capacity to take on more about him. What does it say about the person who has been in church forever, but then when they're asked basic questions, they don't know how to quite put those elements together? They are wasting their life. It is fast wasting before them. In fact, Luke 8, 18, when Jesus is talking in the parallel account, uh, he says this in Luke 8, 18, from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. He added that part, uh, who thinks he has. So right now, you think you know a lot if you're not using it, dispensing it, imparting it, using it, heeding it then even what you think you had will be taken away. That knowledge will soon be gone. It's like the man who, who amasses all of this information and, and hears Jesus talk and then, and then you go out and disobey and disobey and disobey. You build your house on sand. But if you take what God has taught you from his word and you apply it to your life and you do it, you obey it and you say, I'm surrendered, I'll apply it, I'm gonna use this in my life, then you've got a rock solid foundation and when the storm comes, what you have won't be taken away. It will stand in that day. Well, that's Matthew seven twenty four. You need to know that spiritual apathy leads to spiritual atrophy. I don't know if you've ever seen someone whose muscles have atrophied. They've gone almost limp and cripple and, and they curl up and they're very unhealthy. Nerve damage and other things and uh, start to happen to the, the muscle structure. I've seen one man in particular, all of his muscles atrophied. He was not using them because he was brain dead. But spiritual apathy, indifference, kind of that, you know, meh emoji uh, to spiritual things, that spiritual apathy leads to spiritual atrophy. You will not be healthy. You will not be healthy spiritually. You need to use it. You need to just have the blood flow spiritually. I don't know if you've ever heard the adage before, if you don't use it, you lose it. So you have heard it. Okay. That means you're more responsible then. Um, if you don't use it, you lose it. I, I have taken three other languages in my life, or I've learned three other languages other than English and Pig Latin. I guess I can proficiently speak Pig Latin. Um, Igpe, Atenle, everybody knows that, right? You just kind of switch it around. Anyways, that was from grade school. But uh, the, the languages I had to study were Spanish, Greek, and Hebrew. Spanish, Greek, and Hebrew. Spanish, when I was in high school for three years, Greek and Hebrew, on seminary, and they were the ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew. So they are dead languages, but they help you understand the living word, so they're worth studying. Now, I studied with intense care and uh, memorization and try to follow all these different charts and memorize all these little tiny little jots and tittles to try to make sense of these things. Do you know the one that I still know best? The one I still know best out of those three additional languages is Spanish. Spanish. The reason why is because I grew up in Southern California, played soccer on the soccer field, and there were tons of Spanish speakers around me. 
I mean, I learned Spanish in the classroom and on the soccer field. And we had mission trips down to Mexicali, northern Mexico. And we went down there probably about 12 times and, and just having conversation, trying to use it and use it and use it. And guess what? The more I used my Spanish with people in conversation, I learned more as I had conversations. I got stuck at certain points and then they would help me out and I learned further. And I would have to loosen up uh, in my mind, all these things that I was stuck in, and I was able to expand my capacity to learn more. Greek and Hebrew, I have not been faithful to use, so I have been faithfully losing them. Uh, so I wish I could say with them as much as other men who are proficient in those languages. And this applies to our knowledge of God's word. You use it and use it and use it, and your capacity to understand it and have more added to you will grow. But if you don't use it, then it will go to no good, as if you never learned it in the first place. This is true of my life, and I'm sure it has been of your life as well, that as you have traced and watched God's grace in your life be effective, the times when you gave yourself to most intense study of God's word, you got so much out of it, and it was a rich time of study. And you may know other times of your life or other people in your life who seem to know a good amount, but it doesn't ever grow. It doesn't ever turn into anything, and it doesn't change their life. Now, I want to get practical as I end here. Let's think about this, and let's not really not miss where we're going to go next. If you're a student, let me talk to you for a second. If you're a student, can you start a Christian club? Can you start an on-campus Bible study? Can you start some small group that is Bible-based at lunch each week? If you are a parent, can you read scripture with your kids in the morning before you get them off on their day, on the bus to school, or on with their chores? Can you read something together with them after dinner in a way that serves them in that time? Can you spend time in devotions with them before they go to bed? If you're an employee, can you start a weekly Bible study during your Friday lunch? Can you leave your Bible open on your desk when you work so that as people walk by, they see it and they notice and they ask questions so you can talk with them about that Bible that you believe and you love? Can you sit or talk about spiritual things with a coworker during your break instead of be alone somewhere? If you're retired, can you meet with others for breakfast to discuss the word? Can you take someone who's younger under your wing and help them understand things that you do but that they don't maybe, just discipling them lovingly? Can you use your discretionary time to connect with other people who have flexibility with their schedules for the purpose of reaching others with the gospel? If you have neighbors, I think it might include everybody, if you have neighbors can you knock on their doors and introduce yourself, telling them who you are, getting to know who they are? And can you just simply tell them, I live at this address down the street, you might have seen me, and is there any way I can pray for you? Do you have any prayer needs? It's not very, it's not very threatening of a question to ask, but you can ask them that. Or maybe you throw a block party or a barbecue to get to know them for the purpose of sharing Christ with them more in the future. Or maybe you open up your home for a meal or a Bible study on your street. I want 
you just to be thinking. Thinking about what you're doing with the word that you hear so faithfully taught to you. Are you so faithfully living it out? Jesus did not come into your heart for you to be silent. Jesus did not come into your family's lives, some of you, family's lives, for you to isolate and insulate yourself from this world. Jesus did not come into your home for you to lock your doors and draw your shades to the world. Jesus did not come into your world for you to keep building your little kingdom. Truly hear and so truly live. Let me pray. God, thank you for this text. It's a scary text in one way because it stands right in front of us, warning us. It stands right in front of us, pointing to us a real need that we all have, and that is to do more than to merely hear. That is to take what we hear and pay attention to it and put it on display and share with others, letting light fall in areas of darkness where it has not hit before and where we can dispense the truth so that there might be a harvest that is greater for the sweat of our brow in the fields. God, I pray you would convict us, you would move in such a way that we would take your gospel and make it known in our home, on our streets, in our community, and out of our neighborhood to the nations. Lord, would you help us to be convinced that we need to do more than just hear, but to truly hear. In your name, amen.